Hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the book of Exodus, reading from the 19th chapter, just the 5th and 6th verses. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him for illumination. Father, we're going to cover a lot of ground this morning. You know that. And I pray that, I, I just pray for continuity. I, I pray that the, that the reason we're covering the ground, the reason that we are looking at these great epic stories from the Old Testament come out, that we will understand that you have indeed consecrated us to holiness. And that along with that comes such a privilege, but also we are called to be holy even as you are holy. We ask that we would learn how to worship you in the splendor of your holiness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, if you've been here over the last couple of weeks, you know that we're in between studies. We ended our study of John. We're getting ready to start our study of Luke at the beginning of the year. And so I've taken the opportunity to really sort of step back and take a look at God. I mean, to, to look at his nature and especially to look at his holiness, because that's a major problem in the church today. We just have lost the concept of the holiness of God. Well, this morning, what we are going to talk about is the whole idea of consecration. We're going to tell a story, and actually, if you've been here, you know we've been involved with the story of the children of Israel going all the way back to Abraham, starting with one man, bringing it all the way through Jacob and his 12 sons, selling Joseph into slavery, and then along comes Moses 400 years later, and we've been tracing Moses' life. We're going to pick that up again this morning. Now, the whole purpose, the reason it started out is so that you would recognize the providence, the sovereignty, the eternal decree, the covenantal nature of God, and then would be encouraged that no matter what happens in the world outside, that our Lord is in control. But what we have been doing is leading towards an end, and one of those ends is going to come this week. It's sort of a stop-off because the real end we're going to find in the seventh chapter of Revelation as we start talking about Jesus next week. But we're going to trace that story to the place that the children of Israel confront God at Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. Now, when we talk about, we're going to do it by telling a story. Now, when we talk about that story, the story of the Exodus, I realize that it is a metaphor, a type of redemption about how God redeems his people. But we're going to look at it slightly differently this morning. I want to talk not so much about what they have been redeemed from as to what they have been redeemed to. In other words, God has consecrated them in holiness to be his holy worshipers. And so therefore, I want to see that story 
from that perspective. Now, just sort of a side note, and this is for your benefit, um, those of you who come regularly know that I kind of, for for 16 years, I've sort of followed the same formula as far as the messages I bring. A little bit of an introduction like this, then I put things into its context, and then for the bulk of the message, we have the exposition of the passage we're looking at, then sort of a short um, application that is after this. Well, this morning we're going to spend most of our time telling the story of the Exodus. In fact, the exposition of the text I just read you won't come till the end of the story. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is I don't want you to think after we spend all that time in the story and all of a sudden I say, all right, now let's turn to our word that you don't panic, think that that's the beginning of the message, which it normally is. It's not. It's the end this time. In fact, it has more to do with the application today than it actually does the exposition. So, with that said, we're going to jump back into the story of Moses where we left off. Now, we're zooming in on an extraordinary scene. There is a man lying face down on the ground on top of a dry mountain. And in front of him is the most amazing sight. A bush is consumed with fire, and yet the bush doesn't burn up. The bush seems to be unaffected, even though the fire rages in that bush. Now, that is a theophany. We've talked about that, a manifestation of God, and the man, of course, is Moses. And what we discussed was that that theophany, that manifestation of God speaks of both his transcendence and his eminence. Those are two words that we learn. Transcendence is just his set-apartness, the fact that he is unapproachable, unknowable unless he reveals himself to us. His holiness and majesty, that speaks of his transcendence. But at the same time, God is a God who is eminent and wants to be in the midst of his people. And so that burning bush represented both of those. It it showed the self-existence of God in that he doesn't feed off the bush, which is what normally happens, and it also shows the eminence of God, because here the God of the universe has come down to occupy an everyday bramble bush to talk to a goat herder to send him to Egypt to save his people. That's the eminence of God. Now, I'm not going to take time this morning to go back over all that we've talked about. The fact that God tells Moses from the bush to, to, to come closer and then he stops him and says, take the sandals off your feet for the ground upon which you stand is holy ground. I just want to point that, that what God was doing to Moses was consecrating him. God is holy. And that which is profane, which is Moses, cannot stand in the presence of that which is holy unless that which is holy prescribes how that which is profane can do it. you get that? Okay? In other words, God says, Moses, take the sandals off your feet. And that was an act of consecration. Now, consecration is a very simple word. All that word means is to set aside for the sacred use of God. When God consecrates something, he sets it aside for his purposes. 
However, the problem that happens with us especially is that we are profane. We are fallen. We are sinful. And that which is profane cannot be in the, in the presence of that which is holy. So therefore, God consecrates us. It usually carries with it a purification of sins. Moses took off his sandals to leave the dirt of the world outside as he came to address God. Well, that's where he is And what God is doing now with Moses is commissioning him. That's the reason he came down. Because he has seen the affliction of his people. He has heard their cries and he knows about their suffering. Now, if you come back tonight at 6.30, I'm going to try to answer the question as to if God loves his people so much, why did he let them suffer for 400 years before he sent Moses. I mean, that's a question that we in our fallenness constantly ask. And so I'll try to address that as best I can this evening. But let's stick with this commission. God is sending Moses to Egypt, and he expresses basically two reasons. And both of those reasons have to do with the process of consecration. In other words, this is one of those Old Testament types that points to a New Testament reality. Um, In other words, if you'll look at the 10th verse, okay, Um, if I can find it. Hang on a second. Yeah, here we go. You look at the 10th verse. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Obviously, that is what God is calling Moses to do. I want you to go fetch my people out of the bondage they're in. But there's another purpose that God has. There's another reason that he is sending Moses to Egypt the way that he does. And if we back up a verse into the ninth verse, he tells us there. Now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. So he sees the evil that has held them in bondage. So he's not just going to redeem his people out of that, he is also passing judgment on that evil. You may remember what God said to Abraham back in the 12th chapter of Genesis when he said, I will bless those who bless you and those who dishonor you, I will curse. Well, the Egyptians are going to find themselves on the wrong side of that equation because they have dishonored the people of God. And God says in Deuteronomy, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will recompense. In other words, I'll pay back those who oppress my people. So there's a dual purpose. And I just want you to see that as far as the idea of consecration is concerned, there is a drawing out of the world, drawing out of the darkness, if you will, and into the light, but also recognizing that the darkness will always pursue. I mean, will always relentlessly pursue. So therefore, God is also going to pass judgment on the darkness, pass judgment on the evil, because that is the way that he consecrates that which he wants to use for his purpose, for that purpose. 
Well, you know the way the story goes, and I'm not going, we're going to really jump around. Um, Moses, you know, is being commissioned by God. God is sending him. And, of course, Moses, first of all, says, you know, something, God, I, how, how am I going to go? You know, who am I to go there? And God says, don't worry, I'll be with you. And then Moses says, well, how am I going to know? They're going to ask me your name, and I don't even know your name. And that's when God said, I am who I am. And we talked about that last week, how much that opened up to us about God, his self-existence his pre-existence, his eternality, his infinitude, his omnipresence, omnipotence, omniscience, all of those things about God can be found in just those simple words, I am. And then Moses says, well, you know something, I really can't speak all that well. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I stutter a lot. And God said, okay, well, I'll get your brother Aaron to come and he will be your mouthpiece. And finally, Moses just says, God, would you please send somebody else? And God should have just stomped him right there. Um, but he didn't. God had a plan for Moses and God's, his eternal decree, his providence just rolls over the obstacles that get in the way. And so he said, don't worry, Moses, I'll be with you. So what happens is they all leave the whole entourage, Aaron with them now. They leave the desert of Midian and they head to Egypt to set the people free. But brothers and sisters, something extraordinary happens on the way there. Something that is hard to explain, and I'm not going to be able to explain it fully. I'll explain it a little bit more fully tonight. But something, God tries to kill Moses on the way. After all that, after he reveals himself to him, after he consecrates him and prepares him for service, God tries to kill him. Notice what it says in the fourth chapter. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Now, obviously, Moses is not able to do anything to save himself because he's already almost dead. So it's up to his wife, Zipporah, a Midianite, to take things into her hands. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone, and it was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of circumcision. Now, here, I don't, again, I don't have time to go into this, but I want you to see something. As great of a spiritual giant as Moses is, as much as God had prepared him and revealed himself uh, to him in that theophany, Moses was literally talking to the manifestation of God face to face. God tried to kill him. Why? Remember what I, I read in the moment in the words? If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant. Well, you see, Moses is on covenant business. That's why he's going to, to Egypt. To let the people that God made a covenant with Abraham to protect, to bring them out, to fulfill that covenant. And yet, he has not himself fulfilled the necessary sign of that covenant, which was circumcision. And so God says, I'm going to kill you because... You have betrayed or you have defiled my consecration. Oh, my goodness, brothers and sisters, does this have something to say about us? Because we are, we are consecrated to holiness. And all Moses did, you see, it was Zipporah who found circumcision reprehensible. And so Moses had sort of accepted the cultural norm around him rather than abiding by the word of God. 
the voice of God. And he almost lost his life because of it. But anyway, we know, of course, that God had attention for Moses. He, he, we, he knew the way that it would come out. Well, anyway, off they go to Egypt, and you know the story, and I'm not going to tell you all the parts of the story that you very well know. I mean, this is the, one of the great epic tales of Scripture. When Moses goes to um, Egypt and begins to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And, 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 and we, we, we look for the reason. Why, why was it in particular that God sent Moses to redeem his people? Well, and, and why did he have these ten plagues? Why didn't he just crush them immediately? Why did he go through all the ten plagues? Because if you read them carefully, you'll notice that sometimes it's Pharaoh that hardens his heart. Other times, it's God that hardens Pharaoh heart, Pharaoh's heart. So God wanted all ten plagues. To, to, to happen, and, and the reason could be several things, obviously, to show his power and his glory. After all, he's been gone 400 years. He needs to remind the children of Israel his great power. Secondly, to establish Moses as his mouthpiece, as the one who spoke for him. Uh, and, and, and then thirdly, we'll read, we actually won't read later on. If we had finished that 15th chapter of the Song of Moses, we would have seen that one of the reasons was so that the Philistines, the Canaanites, would live in fear. We know that that's how Rahab came to support the, those spies because everyone heard what God had done through the children of Israel. Now, of course, we know that the underlying reason was the covenantal faithfulness of God. But there's another reason. Oh, one of the other reasons that I I forgot is obviously to pass judgment upon the um, Egyptians. But there's another reason. There is a reason that is stated over and over and over again. And we quite often miss it. It's not what they were redeemed from. It is what they were redeemed to. You see, the picture that we're going to end up with of the Kahal, the children of Israel, standing before the mountain of God and worshiping Him in His holiness, that was the object of the exercise. That is why He is bringing them out of Egypt. And we read the story dozens of times, and we don't pick that up. So... I know this is going to be redundant, but I just want you to see that this is what the purpose was. God had a reason for bringing his children out of the the bondage of Egypt. It was so they would worship him in his holiness. Back in the third chapter, when he is commissioning Moses, he says, I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. You will worship me. He gives him instructions on what to say to Pharaoh. He says, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us and now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And so when Moses and Aaron go, they dutifully report that to Pharaoh. In the fifth chapter, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the swords. 
when this plague started, the first one, the, the turning the Nile River into blood. The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, Moses tells Pharaoh, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness before the plague of the frogs. Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me before the plague of the flies. Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Before the plague that killed all the livestock. Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. Let my people go that they may serve me. Before the devastating plague of hail. Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. Let my people go that they may serve me. Before the plague of the locusts. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that you may serve me. And finally, at the last plague. Now, God had already told Moses what was going to happen way back when he was still on the mountain in Midian. He says, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let me go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And so all through that, over and over again, God is saying, the reason I want you to let my people go is so that they can come to this mountain and gather before me as the assembly of God's people and worship me. When he took Abraham out and showed him the stars of the sky and said, I'm going to give you descendants like this, why do you think he did it? So that there would be a massive number of worshipers. Jesus told the woman at the well, remember? When he was talking to her, he says, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Brothers and sisters, the reason that God consecrates those out of darkness and makes them holy is so that he can be worshipped. Worship the way that he wants us to worship him in spirit and truth, in holiness, in the splendor of his holiness, recognizing his transcendence, recognizes that he is majestic and above all things, and yet he has come down into our midst so that we can know him and be known by him so that we could worship him. That's the whole object of the exercise. That's why God consecrates things. A little bit later on in this, he's going to say, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and a beef, is, is mine. Consecrate, set aside for my sacred use. Well, he just got through saying that this is my firstborn son. It's an entire nation of people who are now being consecrated. Seventy strong when they went into Egypt, over a million strong when they left. It's going to be a large number of people who gather before God at Mount Horeb to worship him in holiness. That's the process of of consecration. And then we're going to get one of the most beautiful symbols of consecration. And again, we're skipping over things. I'm not saying that this is a sacrament. Don't go tell people that I said that crossing the Red Sea was a sacrament. But it's like one. In a sense, and we'll see that. So, after the plagues, you know what happened. After the Passover, we studied that several weeks ago. Moses and the children of Israel leave with a whole bunch of loot after plundering the Egyptians. They leave, and they're following Moses. But Moses is following a pillar of cloud. God is leading them. 
And rather than leading them north and east over the land bridge at the top of the Sinai Peninsula and then down to the southern regions of the Sinai Peninsula where more than likely Sinai was, God leaves them in a straight path <laughs> right, right from, from where they left right to the place where, where Horeb and, and Mount Sinai is. Remember, that's the same mountain. There's only one problem. The Red Sea is right in the middle of them, and they come up against the Red Sea. And I am told by scholars who know the area that they probably were that this was not the most strategically advantageous place for them to camp. But remember, it's God who led them there, led them up against the sea. And there's a mountain range to the south, and there's a mountain range to the north, and they are camped against the sea in between that natural sort of bowl, if you will. No place to go. And so back in Egypt, Pharaoh kind of wakes up. Because you remember, after they all lost their firstborn sons, and that great cry went up, and it was just a horrible, terrible night, that's when he said, listen, get out of here. I don't ever want to see you again. Take your flocks and your herds and your people and leave. Well, after they had gotten over the sting, they woke up, and they said, what have we done? We let all of our slaves go. And first of all, look what they did to us. Man, there needs to be some kind of payback. And so he got the most powerful military force on earth at the time, hundreds of chariots and footmen, and took out after the children of Israel. Now, brothers and sisters, I want you to see something about this because this is a hugely important point. The pursuit of evil is important to the story. But it also tells us something about evil, doesn't it? Evil doesn't sleep, and it will never stop. Your enemy will pursue you until he goes into the lake of fire. And he will do so maniacally deluded, thinking that he can overcome God. And so, remembering in in Revelation 12, the dragon who is thrown to earth and turns his anger and his hatred on the radiant woman representing the church, Egypt, driven by the satanic hatred of God's people, take off after them. Even after they have seen the power of their God, they are so angry and hateful that they, they, they run after them because they want to destroy them. And then... They find them like rats trapped against the sea. I love that great line from Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments where, uh, you know, Pharaoh stops and he says, the God of Moses is not a very good general, you know, because here he put them in this totally undefensible spot. And unfortunately, the children of Israel were not only trapped like rats, they began to act like rats because immediately they turned Immediately they turned on him and said, "Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would be have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness." Notice the blasphemous mockery of that. How many times has God said? I want my people released so they can come and serve me. And at the first sign of trouble, what do they do? Oh, I wish we were still back under what oppressed us, under the the ones who kept us in slavery. I wish we were still there so that we could serve them rather than serve the God 
who would lead us into this position, even after the ten plagues. Well, I love what happens next. You remember, it's God who led them there, and there's this cloud, the pillar of cloud, another theophany, another manifestation of God. So he repositions himself, and, and where he's been leading the children of Israel, now he comes and takes position on their flank. What a magnificent picture of God protecting his people. I mean, evil is upon them, the most powerful force. Everyone in that army has lost someone. The hatred, you can just feel it in the air, and God moves and He puts himself behind him. And this is my favorite line from the whole thing. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Can you imagine the look on Moses' face? Forward? Where? (laughs) I mean, there's an ocean there. Where are we supposed to go? And of course, you know what happened. God says, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And God had prepared an escape for them, but not just any escape. You may ask yourself why he does it this way, because this is what happens. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. The waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left hand. Why do you think God divided the waters? He's God. He can do whatever he wants to. He could have flash freezed them, okay, and just walk across. He could have brought up a, a land bridge, you know, if he wanted to, 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 to walk across on that way. He could have rearranged the molecular structure of water to where it's a solid rather than, I guess that's what happens with ice, but he could have done it another way, and they just simply walk across. Why do you think he divided the waters? So that his children would walk through the waters and then up out of that place. Well, there's a lot of interpretations. And this is such a powerful story that no one interpretation is the only one. Obviously, there's a rebirth going on here. A rebirth of the people of God. They're going to go into the water as slaves. And they're going to come out of the water as free people. They're going to go into the water, not a nation, not a people. They're going to come out of that as a nation, a mighty nation, the people of God. They're going to go into the water with no home. They're going to come out of the water focused on a home. And then, of course, there are all the New Testament images, beautiful New Testament images. As I told you, this, the main image that we have here is a, an, an image of redemption, how God washes our sins away, and we go in sinful, and we come out regenerated and reborn. You can even look at this and say, well, this is the narrow gate and the hard path. You can't fall one side or the other, or you get into trouble. You've got to walk on that narrow path. But see, there's another reason. There's another reason why he did that. And that's because evil pursues. And brothers and sisters, evil must be dealt with. Okay? It, it has to be handled in some way. Because it will continue relentlessly to pursue. Satan is like a roaring lion. He will never stop looking for people to devour. And you are those people. So evil has to be removed from the equation. And so, starting about the fourth watch, 
oh, not about, the last watch. I'm not sure whether that's 3 o'clock in the morning or 4 o'clock in the morning, the way that you look at it. Apparently, the pillar of fire now disappears. And Pharaoh pursues. You have to give it to Pharaoh. The guy's brave, right? Would you do that? After you saw this God do all those things in Egypt, would you pursue into that? Stupid, but truly brave. But once again, brothers and sisters, it shows you the relentless pursuit of evil. We learn in that eighth chapter of John that Satan is a liar. He's been a liar from the beginning, that he has no truth. The truth is not in him. In fact, he doesn't even know what the truth is. He's been lying so long, he believes his lies, and he actually believes that he can thwart the will of God. He actually believed that he could tempt Jesus. And so therefore, they actually are willing, because of the hatred is so great, and because they are so blind to the truth, they plunge right into the parted water. Well, you see, it's a two-part process. Moses, come forward, but the ground you walk on is holy, so remove the sandals, remove the dirt of the world and leave it there because I want you consecrated. And that's the way we're going to see this. We're going to see this as a symbol. I'm not saying it's a sacrament. I'm just telling you it's a symbol of the consecration that is occurring here. God is consecrating these people as his holy nation. They're going to enter as a people with the dirt and the filth of of Egypt on them. They're going to emerge as a kingdom of priests, as a treasured possession, as a holy nation. And that's what's happening there. And then, of course, because evil will pursue always, God brings the waters back down upon them, destroying every single one of them. That's what God does when he removes our sin from us, brothers and sisters. That's the whole idea of expiation, the scapegoat of taking the sins and sending them out of the camp. Not only does he forgive you, he removes those sins from you. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to stop being fleshly, that you're going to continue to make mistakes. But you have been consecrated to holiness when your heart is regenerated. And that's the symbol that I want you to see. Well, of course, after the children of Israel get out on the other side, they sing that hymn that we talked about, that we, we read earlier in the responsive reading. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider, he is thrown into the sea. Well, from there... They head directly towards the mountain. Again, the reason, the objective, the purpose. Starting all the way back at Abraham, this is where it is headed. Now, that's not where it's going to end. There's that innumerable throng in Revelation 7 where all of us are going to be one day. That's the end. We'll talk about that next week. But on their way to Horeb, several things happen. They have some more adventures. They run out of food, and of course they complain. Why did you take us out of Egypt? We had plenty of food there, and God provides manna from heaven and quail. Then they run out of water. Why did you take us out of Egypt? We're going to die of thirst. And Moses hits the rock, and water gushes forward. God takes care of, provides, and sustains his people. We've been talking about the providential plan of God all the way through this. But ultimately, even though they complained, once again, I want to I, I drill this home, folks. The fact that you have been consecrated for holiness does not mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you have reached holiness, that you've arrived. Okay, you're still sinful. We're still fallen. 
The children of Israel were still fallen. They made the golden calf for goodness sakes. But God's providential plan for his people to worship him will roll over any obstacle. Because that is his purpose. That we would do exactly what we are doing this morning. We will worship him and the splendor of his holiness. That's what's going to happen next as they reach the holy mountain. You still have your Bibles open to chapter 19. That's where we're going to be. Because the people gather at the, at the, the base of the mountain. The first true assembly of the children of God for the purpose of worship. Remember, they went into Egypt 70 strong. They come out over a million strong. This is the first gathering. I'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. But the first thing that God does is he says, consecrate yourself. You're profane. You cannot be in my presence. I am going to come down in my eminence. I am going to come to the top of this mountain. And that entire mountain is going to be holy. So before we do anything, I need you to consecrate yourself. And we'll pick it up in the ninth verse because that's where it starts. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe forever. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. So in other words, you remember when Moses approached God on that same mountain, all God said to Moses was consecrate yourself by taking the sandals off your feet. You remember, it's the one who is holy who tells how he is to be approached. Now, the children of Israel there are in in, in a group, and he says, I am going to make this mountain so holy that you can't even touch it. If you do, you die. Now, my eminence is coming down on that mountain, but my holiness, my transcendence will make it untouchable. Brothers and sisters, we learned a principle. It's been repeated several weeks. And the principle is simply this. The eminence of God in no way diminishes the holiness of God. What do you see in this narrative? Even though God has come down to be on that mountain, even though he has come down to deliver his law, even though he has come down to create the tabernacle and the holy of holies and the, and, and the ark of the covenant, all of those symbols of Emmanuel, God with us, even though all of this has happened, where in this do you see even the slightest iota of the change of God's holiness? Not a bit. And that's what we're going to see next when God actually does. Finally, after all of these, you know, starting in the 12th chapter of of Genesis, all the way to here, it's been one story pointed to this time God comes down to address his people. 
16th verse, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like a smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord and look and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to the Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up and bring Aaron with you. But do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. There's something that I want to impress upon you. And again, I don't have time this morning to do it fully. I will expand upon it later on tonight. This assembly, this group, this gathering of the people of God, the first real gathering is the first gathering of the church, folks. That's the first gathering of the church of which we are still a part. That's the connection between us and them. We learned a word earlier during the study of the Passover. It talked about the assembly, the whole assembly, using the Hebrew word kahal, Well, um, in Deuteronomy especially and throughout, that word kahal refers to the people of God gathered in worship before God. For instance, in Deuteronomy, Moses says this, These words the Lord spoke to you, uh, all your assembly, that word assembly is the word kahal, at the mountain of the midst, in the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness with a loud voice. So in other words, the people gathered before the mountain are a kahal, a group of people there to worship God. Now, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, which most of you know is the Septuagint, the word kahal is translated with a Greek word that has special meaning to us. It's the word ekklesia, which is the same word that is used to translate the New Testament church of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is a picture of the church Now, I realize that popular Christianity draws a wedge between the Old Testament and the New Testament, but that's not the reality of it. There's nothing that says that church is not the beginning because they're saved by Jesus' blood just like we're saved by Jesus' blood. So in other words, what I want you to see is what makes that different from the way we worship today. See, we've got a... We have a problem, folks. We have a major problem to deal with. And part of it is because of the anthropomorphisms of Scripture. Remember that big word? It just means to attribute human attributes to God. Like says he hears and he sees. He's got an ear and a strong right hand. We begin to think of him as if he was human. But the hardest part of it is Jesus. Because Jesus was human. He was 100% man and 100% God. And he broke the barriers between God and us. And so we think about the eminence and the grace and the humanity of Christ. And we forget about the transcendent holiness of God. So when we gather together, we do it flippantly. 
and sloppily. And we give no reverence. And what I'm asking you is where in this narrative do you see the degradation of the holiness of God? Even though he has eminently come to be in the midst of his people. Nowhere. And we are told, brothers and sisters, that when we gather together like this, and I've said this before, God is here. God is here in our midst. So we're at the mountain right now. And we should approach it, if anyone should approach worship with holiness and reverence, those who have been consecrated to holiness should be the ones who do it. So now, and I warned you about this, now it's time to turn to our text, okay? We're not starting, right? But the text has great meaning to this. Because I want you to notice what God says. Let's just read it again, fifth and sixth verses. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I want to break that down real briefly into its parts. First thing that God gives is a condition. If you obey my voice and keep my command or keep my covenant. Well, we might as well close the book and go home. Because nothing that he says after that applies to any of us. Because there's not a single person here who has obeyed the voice of God. There's not a single person here who has been faithful to his covenant. And so, therefore, the things that he is about to say about his people do not apply to us. They can't apply to us because we are lost and we are fallen and we are profane unless we have been renewed and consecrated for holiness through Jesus Christ. You see, that's the glory of this, folks. The glory of this is that Jesus took care of the condition for us. If... You obey my voice. And if you follow my covenant, then these things apply to you. Otherwise, you're on the outside looking in. And it is Jesus and Jesus alone who gives us the right, who gives us the ability, who gives us the privilege to equate the things that God is going to say about his people to us. Even though I know he's talking about the children of Israel in an Old Testament context, but we are the Israel of God grafted in to that root, clearly stated in Scripture. And so therefore, if you are born again, if you are regenerated, if you are a new creation in Christ, these words apply to you. And if you're not, I know this is so completely politically incorrect. But if you're not, these words don't apply to you. You're on the outside looking in. And and you say, well, that's rude. And I would rather be rude and you to recognize that God does not consider you as his people. And you need to get on your knees and ask Jesus to be your Savior and Lord and to follow him with all your heart. I would rather do that than to give you a false conception that just because you walked down an aisle one time, you're actually saved. Now, this is for the people who have truly been born again, true disciples, true believers. The ones that God has called him to himself. And what he says is glorious. He says, you are my treasured possession. Do you know what that means? Seriously. You ever thought of that? What does it mean to be God's 
treasured possession. Okay? Now, there's two sides to it. Okay? There's a great privilege, but there's also a responsibility, right? You're his. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. God has plans for you. You have been consecrated. And that means set aside for sacred use. You have been set aside for the use of God. Not to run with the culture. Not to run with the world. Not to bring it inside. You were set apart as God's people. <laughs> but you're also in his storehouse. You know, when we talk about the transcendence of God, sometimes we say, oh man, he's so scary. I, you know, he's wrathful at sin, and I, I much prefer a gentler, kinder, gentler God. Except when you're talking about protection. Because the thing about being God's treasured possession, who's going to steal you from him? <laughs> Who's going to burrow in and take you out of God's possession? If you belong to him, folks, guess what? There is no one in this world or in any world that can possibly separate you from the love of Christ, the love of God through Christ Jesus. No one can do it. Jesus told us in the 10th chapter of John that we are not just in his hands, we are in the Father's hands. And he is greater than all. I am thrilled that he is transcendent. I am thrilled that he is omnipotent because our enemy is powerful and hates me and wants to destroy me, but he never will. Not now or for an eternity. Why? Because you are the treasured possession of God. He says you're a kingdom of priests. Too. Well, the kingdom is in a New Testament context, and I only have time this morning to talk about this in a New Testament context. But that kingdom, that's the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom that Jesus brought down. That's the one that he established. And it is here in one sense, but it is not here in another sense. But the fact that the kingdom is here and that you have been called out of darkness into his light and you are consecrated for holiness means that that's where your citizenship is. You're in exile, a sojourner here. You don't belong here. You are of the kingdom of heaven. And not only are you of the kingdom of heaven, you're a priest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, don't let that go to your head. And some people do, unfortunately. They start thinking, hey, I'm a priest, you know, so let me tell you what you should do. Let me tell you what God said. You know, I'm, I'm going to step in. It doesn't mean you're a priest. It doesn't mean that you're a teacher or a preacher or an elder or even a deacon. Uh, what it means is this. In the Old Testament, and, and that's one of the reasons God said, take Aaron with you when you come up. In the Old Testament, God established an intermediary to stand between the people and, and him. And that was the priest. It was the priest who would accept the sacrifices and accept the praise and accept the, the prayers of the people. And then the priest would take those in to God. It was the high priest one day a year on Yom Kippur that would go in and sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice between the outstretched wings of the cherubim. And that's when atonement occurred. It was the priest who stood between God and the people. But when Jesus came, he took that away. That veil was ripped from top to bottom. And the pathway back to the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve had a personal daily relationship with God was restored because we have a great high priest. That great high priest is Jesus. He's the mediator and he's also God. So you have a direct relationship with God. No longer any priest needs to stand in the way. We're a kingdom of priests. Sometimes called the priesthood of all believers. 
And finally, he says we're a holy nation. Holy, set apart, sanctified, consecrated. Now, the nation that God is talking about right now is that new nation that came out of the parted waters of the Red Sea that is gathered around Mount Horeb. We have a new picture of that. We don't have the menorah with a single stalk and seven, seven arms. We have seven stands and Jesus in the middle. You see, Jesus is the one that holds his nation together. And that nation is comprised of every color, every race, every ethnicity, every culture, every spot on the face of the planet brought together as God looks down and he sees those he has consecrated to holiness. We call it the invisible church. We are one in him. And he has set us aside for the purpose of worship. So let me leave you with these words, spoken by Peter. I read them earlier in the moment of the word. And just so you know, I'm not making this up, that this indeed does apply to New Testament folks. Peter's writing to a combination of Jews and Gentiles when he says these words, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Three prayers that I leave you with. First of all, I pray that everyone who is within the sound of my voice, I pray that you are described here. I pray that when you read that opening phrase, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, that you can say, I do so through my belief in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for me. That's my first prayer. My second prayer is that the rest of you who know that you are in Christ are deeply encouraged by this. You serve a great God. You are his treasured possession. No one, not even yourself, can remove you from his hand. And finally, it is my prayer that you will take the idea of being consecrated for holiness seriously, as Peter just said in that last verse. You're not here to dance with the culture, folks. You're not here to see how much of the culture like Moses did you can get away with without getting God angry. You are here. You're set aside. You are set apart for holiness and to worship him. So if you are consecrated for holiness, what on earth are you doing dancing with the devil? You think about that. Let's pray. Lord, what a an amazing salvation you have brought us to. It's hard for us to think sometimes that we are consecrated for holiness because we know that we're not holy. We, we know that we still sin. We have sinful thoughts. We do sinful things. We don't do things we should do. But dear Lord, you have a plan for it. You've consecrated us. You have made us holy. You've declared us righteous. It's not our righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness. And so therefore, Lord, we give you the glory for this. And, and, and as I prayed earlier, I know that as a kingdom of priests, 
One of the things we are to do is to be light in the darkness. And I pray that we will be that light so that other people can see a truly holy nation. And even though they may find themselves on the outside, may they know that there is one way and one way alone that they might be in that presence. And that is Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. May his name be praised. And in his name we pray. Amen.